We've been saying that you are God's manifesto, right? You are, these, you are these amazing declarations of who God is. Through the words that you speak, through the way that you act, through the person and people that you are, you are the declaration of God into the world today. And that's just incredible. And, and we're studying the book of Colossians because Paul believed the same thing about those in Colossae. And he believed that, that God had amazing things for them and desperately wanted them to stay true to the gospel that they had first heard. And so we've got about 11 verses to go through today. And so we're just going to dive in, not a lot of preamble. Um, it begins like this. It begins Colossians 2.4. I'm telling you, this, so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Now, if you forgot about what he's telling them, and we've been studying it every week, so hopefully you didn't, but um, what he's been saying is, remember, there's something going on in the church in Colossae. He writes to them, and rather than hammering them like he did in the book of Romans, what he decides to do is he decides to go, take a step back and speak profoundly about who Jesus is. And so that's what he does. He's begun to speak incredibly, uh, in these incredible universal terms about who Jesus is. Language that he doesn't use anywhere else in his writings, he actually pushes out to the world through this. And then he gets to 2.4 and he says, listen, I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Now let's take a look at that well-crafted arguments portion right there. This is talking about false arguments or, or well-thought-through lies. No matter how good these arguments are or how good they seem to be, no matter how plausible they seem to be, they are something less than the gospel. So let's ask the question, right? Is the gospel a well-crafted argument? And I'm going to argue no on that. Let me tell you why. A well-crafted argument sounds like this. So if you are a good person and if you decide to do all the right things and if, I mean, it's very logical, it's very plausible, then... God will love you. That's a well-crafted argument and seems sir, sir, <laughs> I literally can't say, simply, why did that word get hard? It's been a long day. Um, it sounds very simple and it sounds like we can simply go through the logic and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. The problem is the gospel is not a well-crafted argument. The gospel is messy. You want to know why the gospel is messy? Because the gospel is about God and about you and how much he loves you. And he loves you in your mess. He loves you in your chaos. He loves you in all that. So the gospel sounds like this, not if, 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 then. The gospel sounds like this, God loves you. God loves you so completely that he was coming here willing to die for you. And he gets it. You're not great. You got issues. He knows. He knows every single issue and he doesn't care because he loves you so much anyway. Now, the reason why this is not a well-crafted argument is because that doesn't make sense. What do we bring to the table for God? What do we bring for him? Why would he love us so much? Because he does, because he's God, because he's love. Right? What we want is an argument that we can convince somebody of. The problem with the gospel is this. It is extraordinary. And what I mean by extraordinary is extraordinary. It is not a well-crafted argument. It is the messiness of love, God to his people. And he knows how messy you are. And he gets that and he's willing to love you anyway. You see, there are preachers and there are teachers who will teach you something that sounds a lot like the gospel but is somehow less than the gospel. 
teachers who will preach and say, listen, if you do this, if you do that, if you do this, then, and you go, huh, seems, seems plausible, seems logical. But what it does is it takes you away from the goodness and the greatness and the grace of Jesus Christ because it brings it back to you. And as we talked about two weeks ago, it brings back to me-ology, not theology. It's not about God, it's about me. Anytime you hear a gospel presentation that brings it back to you, it's not a gospel presentation. It is something else. And listen, sometimes preachers are confused because they don't actually know it. Because they have been, they have bought into well-crafted arguments so well that they believe this. So sometimes it's not their fault. Other times it is. And there are well-crafted arguments that, that go around in our spheres of influence, in our faith tradition, and we need to be careful with those. We need to be careful with those because if they're preaching anything less than Jesus all, then they're not preaching the gospel anymore. They're preaching something else, one that is particularly insidious, and I'll just say it, it's last generation theology. Theology that says when God's character is perfectly replicated in his people, then Jesus has to come. First of all, we've got two problems with that. Number one, we're not going to be perfect, so that's out the window. Number two, since when is God dependent on what we do to do what he does? Right? God needs us to be perfect so he can show up. Didn't wait for it the first time. In fact, probably in the mess was when he was like, I should probably go down now. Now, let's not get weird with that argument, right? Let's not sin so that grace may increase. Remember Romans, let's not do that. But last generation theology says that if, if, if we could just be good enough, then Jesus will have to come. So you know what you got to do with the people who aren't good enough? Get rid of them. Get rid of them quick. Right? We like to call it the shaking in Seventh-day Adventism. God's going to start the shaking and we can get rid of those people that are stopping God from coming. It sounds silly. Oh, but it's well-crafted if you've ever heard it. And there's probably people sitting in this room who are like, no, I've heard that, and it did make sense. Let me tell you this, that logic will end. But the love of Christ, that transcends, right? So don't be confused by well-crafted arguments. You see, we're beginning to see some trouble happening in Colossae. Paul and Timothy had some concerns for the church. They were worried that the distraction of well-crafted arguments would lead to falling away from the gospel because that's always what happens with perfectionists. You don't need the gospel anymore because the gospel is you. Get perfect. I'd rather have Jesus because the Bible says it again and again. The only perfection is in Christ. So be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect through Christ. But that's not of your doing. That's of his doing. We'll get more to that later. Chapter 2, verse 5. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. You see, he wants them to understand that like their family, there's unity here, right? And although he's far away, he's with them in spirit, as we say. Now, over the last 2,000 years, some commentators have actually like, tried to pose the argument that, well, maybe Paul had some sort, of, some sort of extra special spiritual power that allowed him to release his spirit to be with them. Let's not get weird. It's not that. He's just saying, I'm with you. I love you guys. Now, the next sections that we're going to jump into, particularly chap verse 15, is actually very complicated. It's a little bit confusing, but we'll get there. It's really confusing if you read it in Greek, but we'll explain that. But the next few sections can be seen as somewhat complex. Let's pay attention and make some sense of them. 
Not everyone agrees to the subject and object of some of these verbs, but, but it really happens a little bit later. But I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to do a little bit of language work, and that's okay. Colossians 2.6. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. You see, in this section, Paul develops the theme of Christ's effective work in redemption of us, as opposed to the false teaching of the Colossian heretics that were there. He reminds his readers of their initial experience in which they had accepted Christ Jesus as Lord, and then he's going to remind them of its practical consequences as well. So in 2 verse 6, he says, and now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow them. You see, he warns them not to be misled by purely human teachings, which is opposed to the true teaching. And with hardly a break, he continues expounding on the nature of Christian experience that we have together. Colossians 2, 7, let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. There's a few things going on in this particular verse. Number one, there's two expressions or two similes that he's using. One, be rooted so that you might grow. And two, be built upon so you have a strong foundation these are a couple of similes that he decides to use. And, I, and every time I, I read this, I think of that song that we sing here, build my life, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. That's what he's talking about right here. The idea is clear. To become stronger, you have to remain firmly united to him, dependent on him, and firmly grounded in the gospel as he says you were taught. Now, who would they have been taught by? They were taught by Epaphras. Epaphras, if you remember earlier on, he mentions Epaphras. He's a teacher. And this is what I love. This is what I love about Paul. Paul is not jealous of his people. He's more than willing to have you learn about the gospel from anybody else. He's fine with it. He thinks that's great. Sometimes we have pastors and teachers and preachers who are very jealous of their people and they don't want their people to go anywhere else. I want you to go wherever you are being lifted up in the gospel. If that's here, praise God. If it's somewhere else, praise God. I don't care. God's got a place for you and a peace for you as well. And Paul feels the same way. But Paul always, I don't know if you noticed this in his writings, he always comes back to this idea of overflowing with thankfulness. And the reason why is because for Paul, he always stresses joy and thanksgiving because he understands that those are the hallmark of genuine Christian faith. Joy and thanksgiving are these huge expressions of us understanding and being rooted in and firmly planted on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure about that, that Paul believed that, read the book of Philippians. Four chapters. But in the book of Philippians, Paul is the most positive and grateful that he ever has been in all of his writings. Why? Because even though he was in the middle of the Mamertine prison in one of the worst places in Rome, he writes this positive letter because he knows joy is not dependent on your situation. Joy is not dependent on your attitude. Joy is dependent on the, the foundation you have in Jesus Christ and your understanding that you are completely saved by what Jesus did on the cross. So that way you can have joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, 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 of very difficult situations. You might still have that joy. Joy transcends. So the hallmark of genuine Christian faith is that you can have joy in the midst of really bad things happening in your life. Joy transcends, but joy comes from the gospel. Colossians 2, 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking 
and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. You may have heard it a little bit differently. In, in the NRSV version, it says this, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. We use that word tradition in there, right? According to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. The reason why I wanted to point that out and think that that was important is because it feels like, and I guess I asked the question, is he making the argument that other philosophies are satanic? Now, the problem is when I use the term satanic, you immediately think like heavy metal music, right? If you grew up in the 80s. Right? Because I was part of that. Like, I was growing up. I was in college in the 80s. And, you know, that preacher would come around and be, talk about the evils of rock music. And, I, you know, I'd be convinced again. You know, and I'd, I'd, take my, I'd take my cassette tape and we'd do a burning of all the music. Do you remember that? I don't know if you remember that. And you'd throw your tapes in. And you'd be like, oh, I remember throwing my Prince 1999 album. <laughs> Arguably a very good album. I threw it. I threw it in the fire. I was like, yeah. And then, you know, two weeks later, I had to go buy it again. I was really upset. <laughs> Those things never really stuck with me. Maybe they did with you. They never really stuck with me. And I know there's probably some of you out there like, oh, the backward masking of the music. I always felt like that was weird. Like, did you hear it? Oh, no. Let's listen to it again. Like, why do I, I don't want to listen to this music backwards. I don't even like it forwards that much. So that's the problem. When I say the word satanic, like that's where your head goes. Don't think of it that way. But, but so let's maybe use a different word. Okay, let's use, are, are, these, are these arguments, are these empty philosophies and arguments antichrist? Oh, shoot. You've got a bunch of baggage with that word too, don't you? Because you're like, I know what you're thinking. Um, listen, anything that diminishes Christ is not the gospel. Anything that diminishes Christ is not the gospel. That means that even traditions within our church that diminish what Jesus did on the cross are not gospel. They are antichrist. So we need to be very careful with that. Now, here's what's so cool about our faith tradition, right? And, and maybe, I don't, maybe I don't lift up the Seventh-day Adventist tradition as much as some people would like me to do. But there is a couple things that, man, that, that is good. Our early pathfinders, yeah, I did say pathfinders. Our, our, our early pathfinders in our faith tradition, they had this idea that, that tradition wasn't something to be honored, to be worshipped, I should say. They honored tradition. We do communion. We do those types of things. But, but, but they looked at the tradition of the Christian church, and they went, hey, you know what? If all we do is honor tradition, we're just honoring the dead. We're not honoring the living anymore. And so it's important that we see what God has new for us, what God has, has, is God is revealing to us right now. And we termed it, we, we gave it a term. We called it present truth. And we said, we want to know what God is doing today and tomorrow as much as we want to know what God did yesterday. And so what we need to do is make sure that we don't fall in love with our traditions so much that they become antichrist, that they actually become a barrier between us and Christ. And we need to be looking for what God is doing now and moving forward so that we might understand God in our new vernacular and in the ways that God is changing and the world is changing and it's okay. I love the fact that our early pioneers, our early pathfinders did that. That's super huge for us because it means we're a church that is nimble. We're a church that is flexible. We're a church that you don't have to go into every single one and it has to be exactly the same. In fact, there can be churches that can be very forward thinking and there can be churches that like lag behind a little bit. And that's okay because God is taking everybody on their own journey. And because we have that built in to our DNA, we have some flexibility within the Seventh-day Adventist church regardless of what the polity says at times. And sometimes our church struggles with its own understanding of itself. So if you're disappointed in the church right now, it's all right. God's in control, and He will move us where He needs us to be. 
And we have to have faith in that. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ all the fullness of God it lives all the fullness of God in a human body. This sounds like chapter 1, verse 19, right? For God was pleased to have His fullness rest in Jesus, right? It's, it's because He's working on an extended meditation on the nature of Christ. Paul shows why they must take care not to be swept away by wrong thinking. And then he, then he even pounds it home even more in verse 10. He says, so you, you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority, what he's saying is that incarnation happens in you. Christ lives in you, as Sam said so succinctly last week. I hope you guys heard him. And if you didn't, go back to the website and listen to his sermon. Powerful, Christ in you. Listen, full life, complete life, abundant life, that comes from the incarnation of Christ in you. The, the world knows who Christ is through you, and so you want to be filled up with Christ because this is who God is. He is setting up the supremacy of Christ so as that we do not forget and then in verse 11, he says, when, when you came to Christ, he reminds them of that first love. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Now, circumcision, of course, is a sign of the covenant. We see this from Genesis 17. It's the sign of the covenant that God made with Israel, this promise that God made with Israel. But now he's saying, listen, this covenant, it's not just a physical manifestation. It is actually a spiritual manifestation that doesn't happen by human hands, but through Christ. Christ cuts away your sinful nature. And then he jumps really quickly, if you don't understand that, because you're, you're not Jewish. And by the way, he's speaking into the Jewish tradition. He's also speaking out of the Jewish tradition. But then he realizes that maybe not everybody will understand what circumcision is because there's Gentiles in the church as well. So he moves immediately to baptism and he uses the metaphor of baptism. And he says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. I, I wanna wait here for a moment because I wanna make sure that you understand this because when you read this text, what should be happening is there should be this overwhelming amen because what he's saying is this, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, right? You have access to all the power of the universe, the power that overwhelms death, the power that overcomes death, the power that overcomes suffering, the power that overcomes anything that lives in you. And that means you can live a life of victory. It is the active power of God. And the active power of God is not only the goal of faith that we might have his power, but also the instrument for the resurrection. So all that power lives in you. We just saw it right here. We just saw that metaphor happening in real life, in real time, when this young person accepted Jesus Christ and decided she wanted to live in power and victory over sin in her life. That's important. Colossians 2.13, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God, who made you alive with Christ, he forgave all our sins. This is good. Amen. There's two pieces going on here, right? Because of your knowing sins, because of the behavior of the sin that you did, right? But also the nature that at that point was not cut away, but that God is cutting away. You see, this is the difference between the guilt and the act of sin. But God takes care of both the guilt and the sin. You see, here's the problem with perfectionists, right? The problem with perfectionists is they think that they're perfect as long as they don't reach out and hurt the person next to them because they have a deep misunderstanding of what sin is. Sin is not just the action that we take, but it's the state that we're in. 
It's the way that we are identified until we meet Christ. And when we meet Christ, that part is cut away and we have a new identity in him. Right? Amen. So a reasonable argument would say you're only saved until you sin, but when you sin again, you're no longer saved because, you know, hey. Or another reasonable argument that sounds pretty good is that if you were really saved, you wouldn't sin anymore because Christ would give you that victory and you wouldn't sin anymore. See, that's a reasonable and well-crafted argument. But what Jesus says is, even if you sin, I'm still in you, and that sin doesn't define you anymore, so you are still saved. All right? And because you're still saved, and because we know that you'll probably sin, God gave you something. It's called forgiveness, and it's renewable every single day. Right? So the problem is we like that. We, we think that that reasonable argument makes the most sense. Maybe it does, but it also damns you to hell. It's the unreasonable argument of the grace of Jesus Christ that brings you to heaven. That's what we live into. And then, then he says, listen, just to make sure that you understand it, I want to make sure that you understand it more than anything else. He begins to use a different metaphor. He begins to use the metaphor of debt. And according to statistics, you all, well, all of you, but like those 40 of you, all of you understand that idea of debt. Got any student loans in the house? Other people are like, woohoo, wait, I'm not happy about that. Identify with it. Yeah, student loans. We got any, I'm not going to ask about credit card debt. Don't, don't, that's, that's between, it's between you and Jesus and Citibank. Um, I used to live with a guy who was deeply in debt. He got himself into really bad credit card debt and he would, you know, he would get calls from creditors all the time and he'd be like, dude, don't answer the phone. I was like, why do we have it then? This was back in the nineties where like we had to answer an actual phone that was plugged into a wall. I don't know if any of you remember those days. Some of the kids in here are like, What's a cord? Um, yeah, we used, to, we used to have that. And so he would always say, I'd, you know, I'd be going to pick up the phone. He'd be like, don't pick up the phone. I'm like, maybe it's that girl I like. She's like, she's never calling you. <laughs> it's the collection agency, man. So, so what if, what if your, your student loan company calls you up and is like, hey, Dr. Gillespie. You're like, yeah. Oh, this is your student loan company. Oh, No. And they go, listen, you owe us 150 grand. That's not true, but you owe us 150 grand. <laughs> yeah, I know. Listen, how about this? We're just gonna cancel it. Is this a prank? <laughs> no, we're just gonna cancel it. We don't think you should have to pay it. Like, amen, I've been voting that way for a long time. They're like, no, we don't think you have to cancel it. In fact, it won't show up on your credit report anywhere. You won't even, nobody will even know that you have that debt. It's gone it's like the wind. It disappears. There's no digital trail for it at all. Nobody will ever know that you have this debt. How would you feel about that? Pretty good? Well, I guess you guys like paying student loan debt. Like, yes, but I've been paying on it for 30 years. I'd just like to see it get to zero. Don't be ridiculous. Right? So this is what he says. He says, listen, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And the words are literally wiped out, erased, tore up, threw away. This financial metaphor of debt is, it's this acknowledgement that there is a paper somewhere that has your name on it that tells the debt, tells someone the debt that you owe them. And he's saying that paper no longer exists. It is done away with. And it's done away with so completely because it was nailed to the cross, the most perfect sacrifice ever made. It's gone. So God did away with our debt, canceled it completely. And then for good measure, he nailed it to the cross. So here's the question. How completely are you saved? You are saved 
completely. It does not seem that you're sort of saved. It does not seem that you're kind of saved, but completely saved. And according to the language, all of this is done by God. It's not done by you. It's not done by the choices that you've made. It's done by God wanting to live that into you. That is incredible and important. So let me tell you this. How come you don't live in victory? How come you don't walk around in joy? How come you feel as if you are losing the battle all the time when the battle's been won completely before? Why is it that you have a sense of, of, of you know, I, I need to work harder, I need to strive more, I need to become better, and then God will, God will what? Save you more? He can't. Because when God starts a job, he finishes it. When God starts a job, he completes it. When God starts a job, it's over and done with, and it's done so well, it doesn't need to be done again. How completely are you saved? And then in verse, chapter 2, verse 15, he puts a cap on it and he says this. He, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, this, this last phrase here is a great deal more complicated than it seems. Um, the Greek can be interpreted in a bunch of different ways. Here's a few of them, just so you know. And I like the way that the New Living Translation does it, but here's a few of them. One is it could be that God disarmed the powers, right? Two, it could be that God divested himself of the powers. Number three, it could be that Christ, not God, disarmed the powers. Number four, it could be that Christ freed himself from the powers, and number five, it could be the Christ made an example of them. There's a lot of them. Listen, friends, this is why grammar is important, all right? Because nobody can figure out what the object and the subject of the verses of the, of the sentences are in this phrase. Think about it this way. Think about if in 2,000 years, the whole hymnody of tweets that we have put out over the last, you know, a billion tweets a day, what if they became canon and people would read the tweets and interpret them? Can you think of the mess that would be? It would be a hot mess because you people don't even, you don't even write out the word people. You just would PPL. And they'd be like, I wonder what they mean by the poop. Right? Uh, grammar matters. So this is what it says again. This is the way the New Living Translation says it. It says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I'm going to translate it with the, the Pastor Tim translation. It's probably not perfect, but it helped me understand it a little bit. It says this, he stripped away their power by his power. He stripped away their power simply by being powerful. He was so powerful in the room, they, they didn't have any power anymore right? He stripped away their power by his power. This is the rulers and the authorities. And he, then he made a spectacle of them. He actually publicly shamed them, and he caused everyone to see them in their failure and his victory. They're not mutually, they're not mutually exclusive. They were happening at the same time. Their failure was being overwhelmingly exposed, and his victory was being overwhelmingly expressed by his power on the cross. That's what he means in the statement. So the question to, to you today is how central is the cross to your faith? You see, if the cross is central, then victory is central. And I've met very few people who don't find joy in victory. Listen, when I was in second grade, we had recess at, um, I think it was 842. And I don't know why we had recess so early. We do, we do 
religion, and then we do math, and apparently that's all our little bodies and mind could handle. So they sent us out to recess for 18 minutes. It was 18 minutes. And I don't know what it is with elementary school teachers and the weird use of time they have, but for 18 minutes, we got to go out and play. And this was an important recess. Let me tell you why this was such an important recess. The reason why is because we didn't have recess again until lunch. And that meant we had almost like two and a half, three hours of bragging time. So what you had to do in that first recess is win. You had to have victory. Because in second grade, when you win on the soccer field, you rule the school. <laughs> right? So if you won in that, in that 18 minutes, if you won and you had victory, you walked back like this. right? You're just walking back to line, but you are king of the classroom, and you let everyone know about your victory. You're like, we won! We won! Nobody cares, but you're like, we won! We won! And then you're looking at the people who lost, and you're like, you lost! You lost! You lost! You lost! We won! And then you're sitting in class, and you'll be like doing a reading class, right? And you'll be like, Jane jumped over the the rock. And you look over at your friends that you just beat, and you're like, we won. It's nothing to do with what you're reading. We won, right? And the whole time, and they just hate you for two and a half hours. But see, that's the thing about victory, right? You find joy in it, even if it's unreasonable joy. John Stott said it this way in his book, The Cross of Christ. He said, it's impossible to read the New Testament without being impressed by the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it and which stands out in relief to the rather jejun religion. Now, I understand that you don't know what that word means, but you're going to have to look it up later that passes for Christianity today. Here's the part that's important. There was no defeatism about the early Christians. They spoke rather of victory, right? That's what they spoke of. They spoke of the victory of the cross, not the burden of faith. They talked about the victory of the cross. Man, is that how we live our lives? Talking about the victory of the cross? Or do we talk about how hard it is to be a Christian? Oh, we have to suffer. We have to. No, we should be talking about the victory. But here's maybe the reason. That victory seems esoteric to us. That victory seems somewhat nebulous. It's out there. God had victory over sin. So let me bring it home and see if I can ask you a question that makes more sense as you leave today. Do you believe that Jesus had victory over your sin? Your personal sins? Your state of sin, do you believe that he circumcised you by that spiritual circumcision where he took the nature, the sinful nature that we lived with, that he took it away and it no longer defines you, it no longer is yours? Because we can say Jesus had victory over sin, but when we say Jesus had victory over my sin, all of a sudden it means something different. All of a sudden it changes, right? It changes how we think. It changes how we move. It changes how we, we believe in the world. It changes what we want to tell the world about Jesus, Jesus is not a good idea. In fact, I think we've made the argument that the idea doesn't make any sense at all. Jesus is the power of the universe to raise you from death. Jesus is the power of the universe to let you live in victory. And that joy that comes from that victory is obnoxious, friends. It's us being able to walk into eternity going, we won. We won. Well, it wasn't us. It was Jesus. But we, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. Do you believe that Jesus had victory over your sin personally today? Because if you did, you've got to walk out of here with a different kind of skip in your step. You have to walk out of here with a different kind of expression of faith that you want to give to the world because you recognize that what Jesus did on the cross was 100% complete and that power that raised Jesus from the dead, it lives in you today. That's what these texts are saying and that's what Paul wanted the Colossians to understand 
because he knew this stuff doesn't stick unless you believe it all the way. As completely as you've been saved is as complete as you need to believe it. What, what Esai said, this light that you feel right now will not be dimmed. When he said that today, I want you to understand that that's gospel truth. Because when we believe in the power of what Jesus did, that is an everlasting eternal flame inside of us that we express to the world through joy, through compassion, through forgiveness, and through grace, just like it's been given to us today. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you because you are his manifesto. You are his declaration to the world of how good he is. Let's pray today. Jesus, Lord of the universe, God, you, you live in us so that the world might see who you are. So let us be that declaration. Let us be that, that line in the sand of who you are to the world. Lord, let us not live in a faith that's, that is almost. Let us not live with a faith that is just barely. But let us live in a faith that is complete because of the work that you did on the cross, which is complete for us. Let us live in victory. Let us live in power. Let us not have that jejun religion that is so often passed off as Christianity today. No, there is power in the name of Jesus. That's why we sing it. That's why we say it. That's why we pray it. That's why we believe it. And so it's in that name that I pray this today. The name of the one we call Jesus. Amen.